Today on Government Matters, an extreme makeover for one of the most successful acquisition programs in government. The leader of the General Services Administration on what's coming next. Turbocharging communications at Health and Human Services during the pandemic. HHS Deputy Secretary Eric Hargan explains. And the most important law in government IT history. One of its authors tells you if he's happy with how agencies are obeying it. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The General Services Administration is in the third phase of its multiple award schedule consolidation. The 24 existing schedules are merging into one streamlined multiple award schedule contract. Emily Murphy's the administrator of GSA. Emily, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Give me an overview of where we are as we head into phase three of this. Thanks, Francis. I'm really excited about what we're doing with the multiple award schedules. We started off when I became administrator with about 14,000 companies or contracts uh, divided between 24 different schedules. Phase one, we came up with a, a consolidated, um, um, sorry, a consolidated contract that had standard terms and conditions. And we announced that at the end of the last fiscal year. We then said, we're gonna start transitioning companies to that new uh, single schedule contract. And we've got 99% of them on board. Now that beat our own goal of 90% by the end of last month because industry has been embracing it and our customer agencies have also been embracing it. They love it because it makes it so much easier for both vendors and customers to use our contract vehicles. Phase three means though that we're going to have to take the remaining 1% of companies that have multiple schedules and work with them on the best way to transition. And that's gonna take longer because we don't wanna take away a BPA that an agency is already relying upon or that a, you know, or that a vendor is one. Um, so we're going to continue to allow those to play out as we move new work to a consolidated schedule. How are you going to do that? How will you make sure that the companies can continue doing the work that they're doing, that the agencies will continue receiving the goods and services that they need to, but you can still achieve this goal of consolidating these last very few contracts, it sounds like? So it's we're going to take the time to do it correctly. So if a company has a BPA, we're not going to take that BPA away. Um, there is nothing that an agency can't purchase off the new consolidated schedule that they could that uh, that they were able to purchase previously. In fact, it's a lot easier to buy off the new schedules than it was after, off the old schedule. But if they've gone through the process of making that initial award and putting a BPA in place, we're going to continue allowing task orders against that BPA uh, until until it resolves. At which point in time, the new work would go under the consolidated schedule. That could take up to five years, but I think that a lot of the work is going to happen faster. How do you make sure that over that one to five years, whatever it takes, that this all stays on track? It strikes me that these are the kinds of places where a detail could get lost, the bubble could pop, and you wind up a couple of years from now with, with loose threads out there, Emily. I don't think that we're worried about that because again, we're finding both the customer agencies and the vendor agents and our vendors are pushing pretty hard to get to that single solution, it makes it easier for both of them. Uh, it means that they've got fewer terms and conditions. It means they've got only one contracting officer that they're dealing with. It means that they are, they've got uh, 
a much easier process for aligning what they're doing with the North American Industrial Classification System. It makes it much easier to figure out when they can use uh, other, you know, other direct costs against their on their schedule contracts. So it, it's a much simpler process. It's not just GSA doing this for GSA's sake. This is something that we heard from our customers and from our vendors that they really wanted. And so they're continuing to push us to be successful. Uh, so I, I'm not worried that we're going to have those loose threads out there because frankly, they're also, the BPAs will in and of themselves just expire. And if, as they expire, they'll be replaced with a BPA against the new schedule. How have you built this so that you don't have GWAC creep, that we don't wind up in 10 or 15 or 20 years with a bunch of them out there? With a bunch of schedules or a bunch of GWAC? Well, with a bunch of schedules. So I, because we now have embraced everything under the one schedule, it's much, you know, it, as long as it's a commercial item or commercial service, we can bring it in. It's, and the NAICS codes themselves cover pretty much anything anyone will ever want to buy. There's no reason to create another contract vehicle. Now, what I would be more concerned about is some sort of special item number, subgroup, you know, creep, where we start adding more and more of those special uh, features. I don't think that that's going to be as much of an issue either, though, because a contracting officer isn't going to necessarily need to do that. To Let me give you an example. Previously, if I wanted to uh, place an offer uh, that included parts of my professional services schedule and parts of my IT schedule 70 schedule, I had to have both contract vehicles and I needed to go through the process of doing that. Now I just have to make one offer and it's one contract and I can pull it all together pretty quickly. So I don't think that anyone's really going to be advocating for us adding more to that. It, it frankly would add more complication for both the vendors and for the, uh, for the contracting agencies. Um, my apologies for fumbling the terminology and the question. I have GWAX on the brain at the same time we're talking about schedules because this week your colleagues at GSA talked about what will succeed Alliant 2. Last time you were on the program, you talked about why you canceled Alliant 2. What do you want to build in whatever succeeds Alliant 2, whether you call it Alliant 3 or name it something else? And I know better than to try and name GWAX myself. But I, what I'm hoping is that we're going to have a GWAC that embraces you know, a lot of small businesses, including HubZone and women-owned small businesses that don't currently have a GWAC that directly recognizes them right now. And whether that means we have pools that are reserved for those companies, or we've got, uh, or we you know, have seats reserved on the GWAC, is one thing we want to explore with industry and figure out what the right approach is going to be. But I want it to be a modern statement of work so that we're able to bring in the, the latest and the greatest in technology and really meet our customer agency's needs. I also want it to be a, a contract vehicle that allows small businesses the ability to grow. And as they move out of a category that, they'll, that there's an on-ramp and an off-ramp, so that they remain successful GSA vendors uh, well into the future. All right, Emily, stand by. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. Up next, one of the biggest agencies in government moves to one of the biggest contracts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, more with Emily and one of the top leaders at Health and Human Services. You're watching ABC7. Welcome back. Agencies have a September 2022 deadline to transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. 
The Department of Health and Human Services has already made the switch. HHS says it saved $700 million. Emily Murphy, the administrator of GSA, is back. Eric Hargan is the deputy secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Eric, welcome. Uh, Emily, the, not everybody's in a great place with EIS right now. What are agencies like HHS that are having success doing to have that success in your view? I think HHS did two things incredibly well. The first one is they looked at this as a real opportunity for transformation. They weren't trying to just go like for like. They looked at EIS and said, we can do so much more in terms of modernization. Um, and in doing so, they were able to achieve really amazing uh, savings. But I'd say additionally, HHS worked with GSA to figure out how to take what they previously awarding as 10 different task orders to support mission needs and instead consolidate that down as much as practical uh, into one solicitation. And they, the, this was led from the secretary level down. Um, it, it was just an incredible commitment from HHS and the results speak for themselves. Eric, I think the thing that is most significant to me about this transition is the fact that you're the one that's talking about it. This is happening from the number two position in the agency that you have insight into this. Why is that leadership position, why is that prioritization from somebody at the DEPSEC level important in a transition like this? Well, when you have to consolidate a lot of our different agencies that have all different missions in this, you have everything from the Food and Drug Administration, National Institutes of Health, Indian Health Service, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you really have to have a departmental leadership involved in this to make sure that that all of these different lines of service can come together. We had over 275,000 lines of inventory that had to be looked at as part of this, and we had to bring together a lot of different contracts. And, you know, as the administrator talked about, you know, it's not just a matter of bringing together into a single contract. It's also being able to accelerate the transformation of our infrastructure as well at the same time to be able to modernize it as well as create these savings. And, you know, by getting out in front, working really closely early with GSA, I think that's what helped kind of make this a real success uh, because it does take a sustained leadership focus on things like this to be able to bring together all of the different disparate elements of our department uh, into it and bring forward a success like this. Eric, I've only referred to this being an opportunity for transformation. You used the word transformation a moment ago. How did you evaluate where you wanted the department to be two years from now or five years in the future to decide what that transformation should look like? Well, you know, we can see on the horizon a lot of changes happening within, you know, our telecom, cloud, 5G, a lot of things that are going to be coming on the horizon that we have to get ready for. Um, you know, it's very tempting sometimes to kind of just let things go on as they have been because things, you know, they go, well, things are still working. But it's more important to kind of reach out for those transformations, technological transformations, system transformations that have to take place to make sure that you keep pace within the government with what's going on outside. So we've approached this uh, both working with the with uh, OMB on the president's management agenda side of things with OPM and also with uh, with GSA very closely. And it really built on Reimagine HHS at the very beginning, the Buy Smarter initiative that we had launched in 2017, kind of built on that as well. So some of the principles we had already been working with, we were able to kind of bring in uh, to this EIS drive uh, to be able to create this success. 
Emily, what do, what have you done with EIS so that somebody like Eric or his successor at some point in the future has an on-ramp to take advantage of new technologies that don't exist today, given how long EIS will be in place? Oh, that's a great point, Francis. EIS is a 15-year contract, so we purposefully designed it so that there would be the ability to have those on-ramps for new technology, continue to modernize, and to bring that in under a, a, a one consolidated solution for agencies, at the same time giving them lower prices. I think that the ability for each of the nine vendors to add new technologies over the lifetime of the, of the contract is going to make, the, uh, make this contract even more of a success. Eric, how did you build those on-ramps into your strategies? It sounds to me like you built a strategy around, as you mentioned, PMA and Imagine HHS and so on, but right. that strategy will change over time, I imagine, whether it's with you and Secretary Azar or your successors, and I wonder how you're leaving those on-ramps open for implementation from the agency side. Well, a lot of this is by the fact that we partner early with GSA. So they're providing those on-ramps and our teams being integrated with them early on. And I can't stress how important it is that people start early uh, with this process because it takes a lot of time. Uh, when you particularly, you look at a sprawling, you know, the largest department in federal government, uh, it's, it's a sprawling department. Uh, to be able to bring all those things together, it really does take a lot of time and focus. And so we have to work when when uh, Emily's team is providing those on-ramps, we learn about them and we manage to fit them into the overall structure that we're building to make sure that they're there for the future because this is a long haul. Uh, this isn't something that we're going to do just all at once. Uh, and even getting to this point of awarding uh, a contract that is eventually going to save us, we think, over $700 million over, the, over that time, uh, that takes time, and we have to look at it not just as a cost savings issue, but as a transformational issue, as a as a way to kind of achieve continuous, I think, transformation uh, in these fundamental systems that we're going to be using as a department for years, decades to come. Eric, we have about 30 seconds left. Is the cost savings the primary way that you'll measure success of this transition, or are there other ways that you'll measure as well? No, I think how we're going to measure it is through the transformation that this brings to our overall mission, you know, the health and well-being of all Americans. This is something that we look at as a way to, to transform and modernize the department and ultimately be able to enable the mission. Saving the money also enables the mission, uh, but also the better technology and the modernization. That also enables our mission, which we think is very crucial, as I say, the health and well-being of all Americans. Eric Hargan, Emily Murphy, thanks both very much for joining me today. Thanks, Thank Francis. you. Up next, a funding boost to solve the IT problems in government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, modernizing IT with the future in mind. You're watching ABC7. The latest coronavirus relief stimulus bill in the House of Representatives includes a billion dollars for the Technology Modernization Fund. Some Democrats in the House say this funding would allow agencies to respond to the virus better and respond better to the economic needs of the country. Congressman Jerry Conley is chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Government Operations Subcommittee. Mr. Chairman, welcome. Thanks for coming back on the program. What's this money going to go for if it gets in there? What do you like about what TMF is doing so far that you want to see more of? Well, thank you, Francis. It's great to be back with you. Um, you know, the uh, TMF is a function of the Fatara 
structural legislation we adopted five years ago. And, and it's sort of to be seen as a subset. It's, it's, it's an empowering provision, if you will, that is supposed to provide catalytic capital to retire legacy systems. And the problem has been getting my colleagues in Congress and the Appropriations Committee to understand how critically necessary that investment, that additional investment is. So for some members of Congress, it's counterintuitive you needed it at all, right? We spend $96 billion a year on federal IT, but 80% of that $96 billion is spent simply maintaining legacy systems. So if I'm going to incentivize an agency head to engage in a multi-year, multi-billion dollar effort to replace those legacy systems, um, I got to give them some capital to incentivize them. And uh, and I think so far, Congress, frankly, has failed on that job. The other prong of the MGT Act that established TMF was that the agencies should stand up their own working capital funds. Are you satisfied with the progress that agencies have made in that area? We've made some progress since the last Patara scorecard, but there's still a long ways to go. So uh, some some agencies simply can't identify or don't want to identify, you know, the capital necessary to do that, and some others are being advised by the general counsel that they don't really have the legal authority to do it, even though we passed a law saying you did. Um, and so, uh, you know, we need to be working with the agencies, with the general counsels, with the CIOs uh, to incentivize that. And as you know, we do we do grade that as part of the scorecard. But no, I think more progress can be made. Going back to the TMF, the Technology Management Fund, you know, in the last appropriation, we got $25 million. That's it. So as you pointed out, in the HEROES Act, we put a billion dollars in there because that's real money. That that will incentivize agencies to make the necessary upgrades and investments we're seeking and to retire those legacy systems that are cyber insecure, very inefficient, highly cost, and really slow down agencies' ability to fulfill their missions. I would, I would love to dig into the idea of the TMF board, Jerry, and what you think of how they are doing so far, but we have limited time, unfortunately. I want to know, more importantly than that, I think, the Fatara scorecard, to my amateur eye, the 10th one that just came out, looks pretty decent. Have, are these agencies meeting the spirit of the Fatara law that you and Congressman Issa wrote as much as they're meeting the letter of it as it appears according to the scorecard? Yeah, that's always uh, that's a great question, Francis, because I think that's always what you're looking for. Uh, I don't want the scorecard to evolve into a check the box and collect your prize. This is about a process of improvement uh, that's continuous. One of the things I think we have really made progress on, though, and that's why the scores have gone up. For the first time, there are no Ds and no Fs. Uh, and, and I think one of the reasons for that is we have made real progress in empowering CIOs. Uh, they've been able to get the attention. They've been able to uh, uh, seize uh, the mission and uh, working with heads of agencies m much more frequently uh, and being able to be innovators within their agencies. And, and that empowerment is, I think, critical 
So I, while some people may approach it bureaucratically as check the box, I think far more CIOs get it that this is about a transformative process whereby we really bring our agency uh, into the 21st century and we integrate that technology into the mission. And we've got plenty of examples during the COVID-19 crisis where agency IT systems have been exposed for their weaknesses. Are there agencies where the CIO or the IT organization is fulfilling that vision that you established, regardless of what the agency's grade is on the scorecard, Jerry? Is there an agency or agencies that you can point to and say, they're doing it right and other agencies should emulate that? Yeah, I, I think we had a number of agencies come before uh, the committee at our last hearing where we highlighted that. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know, one example, AID, um, for example, uh, really you know, has been very aggressive in trying to get with the program and they've had you know a CIO who's provided that kind of leadership and uh, I think more and more agencies are are getting with that program and uh, but the you know for, for me uh, in an organizational chart you know the CIO's got to report to the boss um, if you have a CIO who's reporting to the deputy assistant widget director in the bowels of the agency that CIO is not going to be successful. Mr. Chairman, it's great to have you on as always. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Francis. Keep up the great work. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every one of our programs by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 22828. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.